Well, if you knew, my name is Joey McLaughlin. So pumped to be with you guys tonight. Um, after two weeks of being off preaching and traveling to Belgium with our mission partners, I'm so pumped to be back tonight. And I really got thrown into it today. This is my fourth time preaching this message today, which some of you guys might think that makes me tired, but really just makes me ready, okay? Um, I cannot wait to preach this word for you. And so I, I wanna start just by spending a moment in prayer tonight, really for two reasons. One, because I so in the deep parts of my heart want for you to get a picture for what we're gonna talk about tonight. I do not want this to just be a night that you're like, cool, that was a cool church service. I checked the box on a Sunday night and I can go on with my life. I want tonight for you to consider changing the way you see some things about faith. And I'm not gonna be able to do that through just good words or a great intellectual argument or as loud as I can yell, which I promise later on I will yell as loud as I can yell. Um, it's going to take the Holy Spirit for that to happen. And so I just want to invite him into this place for that, number one. And then number two, because I have done this already three times today, the last thing that I want for this to be for me is just like autopilot. I want for this to be me preaching to you, the people who are in this room, the unique message that the Holy Spirit wants for you to hear. And so I'm just going to pray. And I just pray that you just pray for yourself, pray for me, and just invite the Spirit of the living God into this space. So let's just take a moment and just breathe. So maybe be still and silent before the Lord. Open up your heart to him. Father, I desperately want for you to move tonight in power and in authority and with majesty, and I want it for, to, for it to be so evident. And so come, Holy Spirit, do what I cannot do. Jesus, invade this place tonight. Elevate our eyes, expand our hearts. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, today I want to talk to you about something that the world tries to distort our vision of. Today I want to talk to you about something that the enemy would love for you to see as small, secondary, and insignificant. Today I want to talk to you about something that culture tells a lot of lies about. But tonight I want to talk to you about something that according to the Bible makes all of hell tremble and all of heaven lean in with curiosity. Tonight I wanna to talk to you about the church. The intrigue of heaven and the enemy of hell. What comes into your mind when you think about church? What kind of images populate? Maybe for you, you think about an old building with a steeple and some stained glass. Maybe you think about a big white church with a cross on the top of it. Maybe you think about an auditorium full of people with lights and a stage and cameras and a speaker and a band. Maybe for you, you think, when you think church, you think scandal or Christian celebrity, you think politics or you think hurt. Maybe for you, when you think church, if you're anything like me, you think about your grandparents. You think about maybe the church that you grew up in. You think about maybe a church where you went to Wednesday night suppers. You know what I'm talking about? You went to a church with Sunday school and Awanas. You had boxcar derbies. Any boxcar derby people who did like RAs, GAs? That's how you know you're a church kid right there. So maybe when you think about church, you think about like the smell of an old church basement. How many of you know the old church smell? Okay. You're like, I kind of smell it tonight. I kind of smell it tonight. Maybe when you think about church, you think about a preacher who's preaching about hellfire and brimstone with like a vein about to bulge through his neck. Or maybe for you, when you think about church, you think about this community. You think about these people. You think about this place. For you, when you hear church, you think rescue, discipleship, redemption, family, revival, home. Or maybe you don't think about church much at all. Maybe church like isn't even on your radar. It's not even in the stratosphere of your thought life. It is like in the distant peripheral. 
Maybe for you, truth be told, like you're not really here because you want to be, but you're just, you're here because church is kind of like a thing to do. It's convenient on a Sunday night. Like if I've got time or space for it, if there isn't a game on that I'm watching, like it's a nice thing to do. But truth be told, you're just here tonight because there's some hot single girl at Elevate City that you're trying to holler at. Like we get it. That's why half of the guys come to this church. We're very aware. Maybe for you, um, maybe for you, you're about done with church, to be honest. Maybe for you, you think that the church has just gotten so broken, distorted, so institutionalized that it's just like antiquated, outdated, like a relic of history's past. And you just, you just assume be done with it altogether. You think it does more harm than good. You know, this year in America, 4,000 churches will close their door. I want to try to help you feel that number for a second, okay? This is going to, like, blow your mind. 4,000 churches will close their doors in America this year. There are only 3,000 Chick-fil-A's in America. I want for you to imagine if they all vanished overnight. Every young mom just, like, had a panic attack on the inside. Like, what will I do without the Christian chicken? And what's like pretty heartbreaking is that that might actually bother us more than the closing church. You know, um, there was a study done in 2020 and in Gallup's eight decade study looking at the church for the first time in that eight decade study, the percentage of Americans who attend a church dropped below 50% for the first time. Currently it's 47% of Americans would say that they participate in church. That's down from 70% in 1999. So that means that over the last 23 years, 23% of the American population has walked away from the church. That's happened like on our watch while we've been alive. 23% of the American population has walked away from the church. And when you see statistics like that, it almost feels inevitable the church is just going to slip into the peripheral of the Western American landscape. And surely you've experienced this, right? Surely you've got people in your life, in your world, your friends, college buddies, people in your neighborhood who say, yeah, I'm, I'm done with church. Like, I, don't, I don't like the church. I don't really have to go to church to be a Christian. You know, I love Jesus, but I don't really like the church. Or the one that I always think is so funny, I'm not really into organized religion. Wait, so you're into disorganized religion? Like, what is disorganized religion? Like, everybody shows up in random places, sings whatever songs they want to at different times. Disorganized, everybody just talks whenever they want to, believes whatever they want to. Oh, so you like chaos is what you're trying to tell me. Um, there has undoubtedly been some harm and some damage done through the church, and there have been some people who've, wanted to almost give up on church. And I get it. There, there are days where, I'll be real, guys, like I, I start to wonder myself where I'm like, is all of this worth it? You know, I don't know if you know this. I put a lot of work into these sermons every single week. And some, sometimes I'm like, do they, even, do they even remember what I preached about last week? Like right now, like could you remember what I preached about last week? Trick question. I didn't preach last week, okay? <laughs> I wasn't even up here. But if I did, you would remember. <laughs> But there are these moments where you just, man, you start to wonder, is it all worth it? Tonight, I want to try to convince you that it is, that it is so infinitely worth it, that regardless of how you currently view church today and right now, I want to give you everything that I've got tonight to try to take the church down to its theological studs. I want to try to remove all of the religious asbestos and all of the cultural miscalculations that get put on this thing called the church. And I want to try to rebuild it back tonight in our minds using the Bible so that you don't understand church the way that your parents communicated church. And you don't understand church the way that some lame in his mom's basement with a keyboard blogging, you know, understands church. But that you, yeah, that you would understand church the way that the Bible understands church, the way that God sees church, the way that Jesus sees his church, the way that heaven sees the church, even the way that the gates of hell see the church. So I've got a couple of hopes tonight. 
Number one, I just, I'm really praying that through the power of the Holy Spirit, your heart would start beating out of your chest and you would fall in love with the church of Jesus tonight. And that like at the end of the night, you would go, man, uh, girl is beautiful. Like she is fine, okay? Like the church is gorgeous and brilliant and altogether lovely. And you would find yourself just falling in love with the church of Jesus tonight. The second thing is I pray that you'd find yourself becoming a little, just, just a little, I don't, I don't expect too much. My faith is a little beat down these days, but just like a little less critical of the church and that you would just kind of pay attention to how you talk about the church and you would realize that the church is not a product to be critiqued, but it is a bride to be loved. Then I pray that tonight you would begin to see the church not as something that is a nice thing to do when it's convenient. I'm so tired of our generation treating the church of Jesus as a convenience. I want for you to know that something happened in the American Christian psyche in COVID that eroded the value of the gathering of God's people and made it a nice thing to do when it's convenient as opposed to the essential marker of what it means to be a part of the people of God. And that idea would have been totally foreign to the writers of the New Testament. Like they couldn't have conceived of how arbitrarily we treat gathering together as the people of God. They saw it as the highest privilege, as the greatest joy, as the thing that they look forward to more than anything else. Like their gatherings in the first century, this is gonna be weird, were called love feasts. Like literally because they were celebrating communion and they were coming to this table and there was this expectation of looking forward to it and they were such this sense of family. This is gonna blow your mind, okay? Um, these Christians of people who came from all different walks of life started calling each other's brothers and sisters and so they thought that, and they started to say that we're in a family and so then they thought that they were like marrying their like family and everybody was like, weird, gross. What's going on there? But there was this unbelievable sense of love and expectation and this paramount sense of importance about gathering together the people of God. And I just pray that that would happen again in our hearts, that we would understand the significance of what we get to do. And then finally, here's just my last hope and prayer is that something would happen in your hearts tonight where you would go, we must multiply the church. Like just write that down if you're taking notes, like we must multiply the church. It's not a Joey thing to do. It's not a staff thing to do. It is a we collectively must multiply the church. And I'm just praying that you'll, you'll catch a vision for that tonight. So let's take this thing down to the studs. The first time that the word church appears in the Bible is in uh, Matthew chapter 16. And uh, it comes out of the mouth of Jesus himself. So think about this, 37 books thousands of years, not a single mention of this thing called the church. Now there are signposts pointing to it, there are shadows of it, but no mention of it until Jesus speaks it into existence. It's almost as if the writers of the New Testament have in their minds that they want you and I to see the man Jesus Christ as the intellectual architect behind the church. The Bible wants you to go, Jesus thought this up. It was his brilliant idea. It is unexistent before him. And then he speaks it to be. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. This is one of the most important conversations in the Bible. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. First time it appears. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Up to that point in the biblical narrative, the word church never appears, but with five words out of the mouth of Jesus, it is breathed into existence. And those five words... Those five words, I will build my church, carry with them unbelievable significance for this word. I want for you to think about that for a second. Jesus says, I, I, 
not pastors, professionals, preachers, priests, or politicians. I, Jesus, makes a very personal interest in the church, meaning the church is very personal to Jesus. You ever heard somebody say before, hey, bro, not personal. Oh, I'm sorry about that. It's not personal. I want for you to know that to Jesus, the church is very personal. It is very personal to him. He says, I. And then he says, will. Will. And it's this idea that Jesus is ready and willing to use any and everything at his disposal to bring this to fruition. The church is Jesus' inevitable intention, meaning that the church is purposed by Jesus. It is his will. It is his desire. It is his aim. It is his objective. It is his very purpose. I will build. Not start or inaugurate or found or just begin, but to build piece by piece, person by person. Jesus says about the church, I don't care how hard this job gets. I don't care how messy the construction site becomes. I will build my church, meaning that the church is the preoccupation of Jesus. It is the thing that he is primarily concerned with. I don't know what you think that Jesus is doing right now. I know, like, you know, somebody told you that he's gone to prepare a place for you in heaven, and he has. But I want for you to know that what he is primarily doing isn't getting your mansion ready. It's rescuing sinners from the gates of hell. It's building his church. That is his primarily acti primary activity. What else did Jesus promise to build? This is Bible trivia. The answer is nothing, okay? I've read it cover to cover. There's one thing he promises to build, and it is not your brand, your business, your family, your influence. It's his church. Jesus says, I will build my. He says, my. Jesus claims ownership of the church. He said, my church, meaning the church is the prized possession of Jesus. It's as precious. He's like borderline crazy about this thing called the church. He goes, it's mine. It belongs to me. I own it. It's got my name on it. It is precious to me. You almost at this point don't even have to know what the word church means or is to even know that it's pretty stinking important to Jesus. Like, whatever the church is, it seems to be unbelievably significant to the man, Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and answer the question, what is the church? Church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Let me hear you say ekklesia. Oh, I love it when you talk Greek to me, okay? Now, ekklesia, the definition for it, it's going to pop up on the screen, is the called out ones assembled or it's gathered together for a purpose. Now, here's where we're going to go to seminary for a second, so hold on. The word ekklesia appears some 114 times throughout the pages of Scripture. When Jesus said, I will build my ekklesia, he is borrowing from Greek culture. In Greek culture, 500 years before Jesus was ever born, there was what was called the Athenian ekklesia. This is so important if you want to be a church history nerd, okay? And so there was the Athenian Ecclesia, and this is where we're really going to nerd out, so hold on. The Athenian Ecclesia was a called, separated, and prestigious religious assembly of distinguished Athenian citizens who determined laws, debated public policy, formulated new policies, argued and ruled in judicial matters, elected the chief magistrates of the land, decided who should be banished and who should be selected and invited from society to join this prestigious assembly. So, in a very real way, I don't know how you see church, but the first people, they would have seen an ecclesia, this group of people who have these kingdom, embassy, outpost, authoritative, political, kind of shape the trajectory of society kind of understanding. They would have seen the church, a right understanding of seeing the ecclesia is an outpost of the kingdom. And so, Think about this in your mind when you think the ecclesia. The church of Jesus is the purposed people of Jesus called out of the world and assembled together to be his representatives. Churches, local churches, act as embassies of the kingdom, a new kind of humanity who vividly demonstrate what life and citizenship looks like in the kingdom of God. They fly King Jesus' flag, sing King Jesus' anthems, practice King Jesus' customs, fight on King Jesus' behalf, and they push back any and all darkness that oppose King Jesus' revolutionary light. 
They act as an alternative story, an alternate reality to the world at large. An Eden oasis in a desolate land, a colony of heaven in a country of death. Have that image in your mind when you think about the church. Over time, however, the Athenian ecclesia had such prominence and significance that this word ecclesia gave way to any and all gatherings that would take place. And so when a group of people would assemble together, they would just start to call that an ecclesia. And so literally we see in Acts chapter 19 that this word is used to just not talk about the people of God, but to talk about just this people that gets together as a mob to overthrow the city. So literally just people who got together for the purpose of bringing chaos to a city were called an ecclesia. And so over time, it just becomes a group of people gathered together for a specific purpose. And so like the best that I understand in history, in Jesus' time, when Jesus is on the scene, the way that they would have understood an ecclesia is a herald would come into a city and he would say, hear ye, hear ye. And people would come out of their homes and into the city square and the herald would bring a message and all of the people who would gather around that message, listen to that message, respond to that message would be called the ecclesia. So then it's very important, what is the message that Jesus builds his ecclesia around? Well, Peter already told us, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You, Jesus of Nazareth, in the flesh, living 2,000 years ago, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, the predicted one from the Old Testament, the one who will set his people free, the one who will make right everything that went wrong in Eden, the rescuer, the hero. You are him, the one that I've waited for my entire life, and you are the son of the living God. You are actually God in flesh, God incarnate, maker of all that is, ruler of heaven and earth. You are the Lord of lords. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, the people all over the planet who hear that message, respond to that message, live for that message, in light of that message, orient their lives around that message, are his ecclesia. He builds his ecclesia on the foundation of that confession. This is amazing. You, you, you should really be wrestling tonight now about have I built my life on that, that reality, that statement, that truth. Do I show up thinking about that? I'm not, I'm not coming here because it's a religious thing to do. I'm not gathering. I'm not prioritizing this because it's the right thing to do or because it kind of makes my life better or makes me feel better about myself. I'm, I'm gathering here because I actually think that there was a real living, breathing person named Jesus and that he is what I've been searching for my entire life. He's the maker of heaven and earth, the one who will take away the sins of the world, the one who will set me free. And I'm trying to know him, experience him, live for him, hear his teachings, live for his ways. That's the church at its most basic fundamental level. That is the ecclesia of God. Now, this is just where I'm going to nerd out with you theologically. I don't know. I just like, want y'all to be like mini seminary students. It's just like my heart for, as your pastor. So um, there is the Ecclesia Universal and the Ecclesia Local. The Ecclesia Universal means that there are Christians in all places in all times. There were people who were part of the church before us, and there will be people who are part of the church after us. It also means that there are uh, uh, people who are part of the church here right now when we gather the local, but then also like in other places. Like the church is here and believe it or not in Mississippi too, okay? Like, so it's expressed in different places and in different times, but the universal ecclesia extends to all believers who gather around that message for all times. But then the local ecclesia is us. To elevate city, the people who gather here at 5 p.m. on a Sunday night who are part of the movement that Jesus is building here, that's this local ecclesia. And most of the New Testament is written to local ecclesias. It's written to people who are in communities like this, who are doing life together, sharing life together, learning with and serving each other. And, and so the local ecclesia is extremely important for us to understand. Now, here's my favorite definition for church. I'm going to put it up on the screen. The ecclesia is the purposed people of Jesus gathering in his name, around his message, practicing his ways together for the advancement of his kingdom. Every phone should be out and take a picture of that, okay? Write it down or take a picture of that. The ecclesia is the purposed people of Jesus gathering in his name, around his message, practicing his ways together for the advancement of his kingdom. If you don't have that, you don't have an ecclesia. 
Like whenever you're wondering, whenever you're curious about like what really is church? What are we really doing as the church? We are the purposed people of Jesus gathering in his name, around his message, practicing his ways together for the advancement of his kingdom. That's what this is about. It's not just about listening to a, a, a speaker who yells and tries to tell some jokes here and there. It's not just about singing songs and getting people wet. It's about the purposed people of Jesus gathering in his name around his message, practicing his ways together for the advancement of his kingdom. So Jesus institutes the ecclesia in Matthew chapter 16, but then the book of Acts becomes the beginning of Jesus making good on that promise. If you read Acts, Acts is the account of the early ecclesia, the first ecclesia. And so in Acts chapter one, verse um, 18, no, eight, I'm sorry. Uh, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And that identifies the primary core activity of the church, to be witnesses of Jesus' message to the ends of the earth. If you wanna know what the fundamental, essential identity and activity of the church is, it is to be the witnesses of Jesus' message to the ends of the earth. But then Jesus goes, there's so much more than that. Like that's the foundational fundamental, but there's more. But you're gonna need the Holy Spirit to be able to do this and to live into this. And so I want for you to go and wait. And in Acts chapter two, 120 people, disciples gather together, they ecclesia. They meet in this upper room when something supernatural happens. Wind comes, the building shakes, fire falls. They start speaking in strange tongues. Jesus forges his church with fire. Many theologians say that what happens in that room at Pentecost is the inception or the birth of the church. It's where the whole thing begins. And it's really a wild story where God takes his spirit and he puts it in the hearts of people. Everybody gets a fire above their head. And this is so significant. In the Old Testament, fire was the marker of God's presence. So on Mount Sinai, or in the tabernacle, you would see fire, and it was this one flame denoting the presence of God. But in the New Testament, everyone gets a flame above their head, saying that God's manifest presence comes to live within people as they ecclesia. Something supernatural takes place when we gather together and the presence of Jesus shows up. And the church is forged with fire. And the rest of Acts chapter two, it's, it, it, this weird thing happens where they speak in tongues and I would love to talk to you about that. Make all of you feel weird and uncomfy tonight, but we ain't got time for it. And so going on from there, you see the activity of the early church in Acts chapter two. And I just want to give you a brief survey of what you would see. If you were to look at Acts chapter two and study it, what you would see the early church doing as the ecclesia is you would see them showing up my iPad is very dark because it's getting ready to die. It's gonna come on the screen. So I'm just gonna look, preaching the gospel, teaching the scriptures, demonstration of the supernatural, exaltation of Jesus, a calling to repentance, baptism, exhortation, right leadership, fellowship, prayer, communion, gathering in the temple and homes, unity, generosity, care for one another and the world, worship and experiencing growth. That's the activity of the early ecclesia. That's what those people are gathering together to do. Meaning if you don't have that, you don't have the ecclesia. All right, so this is where we do Demolition. Let me hear you say demo day. My favorite part of any sermon, okay? This is where I stop being your friend and I start being your enemy, all right? This is where I start to say some things that hopefully step on your toes a little bit. I want to try to remove some of the things that maybe you've been taught or thought that a church is that a church actually isn't. So let me tell you tonight that a church isn't listening to a podcast. And a church isn't watching your favorite celebrity preacher on YouTube. And the church isn't just meeting with some of your hipster friends in a coffee shop as you sip lattes. I don't care if it's at Valor or not. <laughs> and the church is not your 501c3 nonprofit that you started. So when you give money to that, you're not giving money to a church. When you support like humanitarianism in the world, that has nothing, that, that's not the church. And when you, when you think about a political party that kind of hijacks Jesus and attaches his name to their mess. That's not the church. It's not a political party. And it's not a denomination. It's not the Catholic institution. It's not the church. And, and it's not just you and your friends coming together in a house, having a Bible study together. As hip and trendy as that is, it's not a church. I even want to say this. A church is not just where two or more are gathered and Jesus is there also. And I know that that's like a hot take, 
But if you'll read the rest of that verse, it says, where two or more are gathered, Jesus is there also. It does not say that it's an ecclesia. It doesn't say that. Do you know where else Jesus is? In a mosque. Do you know where else Jesus is? In California. And that's definitely not a church. Just because God's presence is somewhere, it does not mean that it is an actual ecclesia. There are certain things that have to be happening in order for it to be an ecclesia. And I know what's going on there, okay? It's just people going, listen, Joey, I just, I just really feel like we just need to get back to the Bible and we just need to be like the early church. I just want to be like the church in Acts. I just want to do it like the early church did. No, you don't. No, you don't. I mean, and I'm not being judgmental tonight. I don't know that I do either. What they were doing was very intense. Like, let's just talk about it for a second. You want to do what the early church did in the book of Acts. They met together in the temple courts and from house to house every single day. They showed up to pray three times a day together. That's what the early church did. Most of you struggle to show up here once a month. And you think you want to do what the early church did? All right, let's just keep going. The early church, they actually submitted their lives in authority to the teachers. Absolute authority. They also, they put all of their money in a big pot together and they shared it as the community has needs. Anybody want to sign up? All your money. Just put it in a pot up here and people just come take it as they, as they, as they have needs. Want to be the early church? They did the, they did the weird stuff, y'all. Like stood out in the public street preaching the message of the gospel regardless of the cost or how weird people thought that they were. They pursued the supernatural. They spoke in tongues they were willing to go to prison. Their friends got carried off. They would literally move locations, pick up their entire families and go somewhere else just for the purpose of preaching the gospel. And many of them were martyred for the sake of multiplying the early church. So we're gonna have an early church interest meeting after the service tonight. Just make sure to bring your checkbooks and your living will. I think we should absolutely look at the early church and be inspired by the early church and dream about the early church. But let's be careful how we talk about this thing called the church. I wanna say something around the idea of you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Y'all heard that before? I just wanna bring up what my brother Tony Evans says, okay? To people who say, I don't have to go to a church to be a Christian, okay? Well, you don't have to go home to be married either, but you try that and see how it works. Over time, it is going to what? Erode the relationship. And likewise, you stay away from the house of the Lord. Over time, that relationship is going to erode. And as much as I love what Tony Evans says, I love even more what the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to loving good works, not neglecting to meet together, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, if you want to be an obedient Christian, you gotta go to church. And the writer of Hebrews has this idea in their mind that as it gets further away from Jesus' resurrection and closer to the end of time, we're not gonna meet together less. We're gonna meet together more. We're gonna look out there at the carnage that's happening in the world and I believe like we're living in these kinds of days right now where we are so inundated with so many messages from culture. We are so enticed by lust and by materialism and by things. And there's such a, an idolatrous spirit in the day and age that we live in that, that there's gonna be this thing in us that goes, we've gotta get together with the people of God. We desperately need each other. We must ecclesia together to be able to stand strong till the end. So, Writers in the New Testament would say that it's almost impossible to conceive of a version of Christianity where there are flock, where there are flockless sheep, bodiless body parts, churchless Christians. I love what the church father Augustine says. He says, he who does not have the church as his mother does not have God as his father. It is impossible to practice all of the one another's of the New Testament, which are kind of like the fabric of Christianity without gathering together with other believers. You can't love one another, comfort one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed, pray for one another. You can't do that without gathering together. And people who think that the church is optional are just missing out on so much. 
this is so heartbreaking, but the average amount of time that people go to church today is about once every four to six weeks. So like, I know like, you know, on a night like tonight, we've got a couple hundred, two, three hundred people in the room, but there are probably actually five, six hundred people who call Elevate City Church Home. They just come once every six weeks. And you know what's heartbreaking about that? Here's what's really heartbreaking about that is they are being formed by TikTok and Instagram and Amazon and Apple every single day. And then they are counting on eight experiences to come to somehow form them into the likeness of Christ and wondering why this Jesus thing isn't working. And it's just, it's impossible. It's not, it's not really gonna happen. Do not forsake the gathering together of the believers. Okay, so... That's the church very technical, okay? That was just me being very intense and very theological and hopefully expanding your mind for what this thing called the ecclesia, the church actually is. That's the church very technical. But here's what I really want to do tonight. Now I wanna show you the church very beautiful. I wanna speak to your heart and show you how gorgeous and dynamic and lovely and intimate this thing called the church is. Like how many images do you think there are in the Bible for the church? Like I know that you can probably think of some that we sing in songs, right? Like, the body or the bride or maybe something like that. But, but how many of those types of images do you actually think that there are? There are 96 unique images that picture for us the church of Jesus throughout the scriptures. Almost a hundred analogies that the Bible is wanting to give us so that we can not just know the church, but we can feel what this is supposed to be like. Um, I want to read some of them for you. Here are the beautiful images of the ecclesia an assembly, an army, the aroma of life, a body, a bride, a building, branches of his vine, a chosen people called out ones, a city, citizens of heaven, the dwelling place of God, the fellowship, a flock, a family, a habitation, a house, an inheritance, Israel of God, a letter from Christ, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, a sanctuary, stones being built together as a temple, salt of the earth, light of the world, a lampstand, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, a plant, a field, a vineyard, the church. She's beautiful. Like so many more dimensions than you see her as. Like that's what it's supposed to feel like. All of those things simultaneously working together. Ephesians chapter two, verse 19. It's perhaps one of my favorite pictures of the church. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The most common image of the church throughout the pages of scripture would be the body. Let me hear you say the body. This is Paul's favorite picture of the church. And uh, he talks about it in Romans chapter 12, verse four. He says, for we are, for, we ju for just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one in the body of Christ and individually members of one another. The idea here is that the church is not just one person. You know that, right? It's not just me that's the church or the staff that's the church. No, we are the church. And we're supposed to be like a body, meaning that if all of the parts aren't connected together and working in the right way, then the world will not see the fullness of who Jesus is. I'm going to say that again because it is so important tonight. We will not be able to show the world the fullness of who Jesus is unless every part of the body is working together at the same time. First Corinthians says it like this. Uh, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So let me say it like this. Culture would love to tell you that you're dispensable, that you're replaceable. According to the Bible, you're not. You have an essential, critical part to play in the kingdom of God. And until you start to see your part in the body as important as I see my part in the body, we'll never experience revival in our land. Everybody talks about wanting revival. Do you, do, do you know when that's going to happen? When you start to see your part of the body, whether you are a hand or a foot or a toe or a pinky or a love handle... Until you see whatever part you are as significant as whatever part I am, we're not going to see revival in our land. 
And I know what you're thinking. You're going, Joey, well, that feels impossible. You feel like a little passionate about this. And it seems like it's your whole job. You do this 24-7-3. It's like all you're living for. Exactly. That's revival. When everyday ordinary people realize that the primary reason that they were put on this planet is not for a profession or a career or to build a name for themselves, but to join Jesus in building his church. They're supposed to be a part of the body of Christ when they catch a glorious vision for their life, that that is their one passion, their one purpose, their singular focus. They may be engineers, but they're really building the church. They may be nurses, but they're just in disguise. They're building the church. They may be teachers, but they're truly building the church. They may be moms, but they're building the church. No matter what they do, that's just a means to an end. They're building the church. When everyday ordinary people catch a vision for their lives like that, revival begins to break into the land. You know, I love what David Platt says about this idea. He says the church in America is often like a football stadium where 22 people are in need of rest and thousands of people are in need of exercise. Some of y'all, you a little spiritually lethargic and obese. I just want for you to know. You've been sitting on the sideline way too long, eating, consuming fat meals. These are dense meals. And it's time for you to put it into practice. It's time for you to be the church. Christianity is no fun when it's a spectator sport. Like there's some sports that are way more fun to watch than to play. Christianity ain't one of them. One of the reasons that you end up so bored and discontent with church and in your faith is because you treat it like you're supposed to sit there and watch when you are supposed to be in the game. And until you do, until you do, until you discover, until you go to base camp and equip and you get connected into this and you really figure out what part of the body am I and what unique per, per, play, uh, piece am I supposed to be in this puzzle, until you do that, you will not understand like the joy of being so loved by God, of knowing that you're stepping into spaces and places that if the Holy Spirit doesn't empower you, that you're gonna look like an idiot until you go, oh wow, I was created for this. Like I want for y'all to feel this. This isn't supposed to be a place where hundreds of people show up to watch one guy use their gift. My gift is actually to try to unleash your gift in you. Like God wired me for this. He gave me these big fat vocal cords. It gave me just this like mind that is like loves to consume information, listen to podcasts on nine times speed, book after book, just nerd out in Greek and ancient history and then try to consolidate that for you so that you could get something out of it. Because we know y'all ain't reading all these books that I put up on the screen, come on. <laughs> like we, I know you know, okay? But, but God's given me these gifts to try to, to get you to see your gifts so you can play your part. And guys, like I love the part that I get to play and whatever part you get to play, I want for you to know when you discover it, when you sit in it, when you lean into it, when you give your life for it, you will love it too. You go, oh my gosh, Lord, thank you. This is joy. This is life. This is purpose. It's not going to be found in your job. Unlikely. I just need this generation to know. Do you know what your, God's will for your life is? Everybody's out there just looking for God's mysterious will for your life. It's to build his church. It's not a secret. He doesn't need to write it in the sky or give it to you in a dream. He put it in the Bible. Join him building his church. You know, when a body's disconnected, it's called a crime scene. That's a pretty good picture of the American church. Disconnected, severed, bleeding. Oh, what would happen if we would come together with one heart, one mission, one vision, one purpose to be his body, to express the fullness of who he is to the ends of the earth. So the most common picture is the body, but the most beautiful picture, I think at least, is the bride. The bride. Ephesians chapter 5 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself without, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The church is the bride awaiting the return of her husband. Oh, you need to be careful how you talk about the church tonight because she is a bride who has a husband. And one day that husband will return. And when he returns, he is not coming back as a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. When he comes back, he is coming back with hair like wool, and with fire in his eyes, 
with a scepter in his hand and a sword coming out of his mouth. He is riding on a horse that is white and his name is faithful and true. On his thigh is tattooed in blood, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he comes to make vengeance and war and to judge all of those who have opposed his church. Be careful how you talk about his bride. And that's the image of Jesus I want to put out in front of my house every single Christmas, just so you know. <laughs> you got your little manger. I've got him on the horse with the sword coming out of his mouth. Because <laughs> that's how he's coming back. For his bride. Oh, be careful how you talk about the church. Little bloggers in their mom's basement, this about the church. That about the church. Oh, if only the church would. If only the church would. The church should do this. What if you stopped seeing the church through your eyes and you started seeing the church through the eyes of her husband? What if you started seeing the church the way that Jesus sees the church? As lovely, beautiful, worthy, worth dying for, worth spilling his blood for, as forgiven, holy, washed with the water of his word. A, a mess, yeah, but his mess. Like, that's my girl, okay? Like, you know, it is just such a foreign concept for me to think about somebody being able to say that they love somebody but don't like their wife. Like, oh, bro, try saying that to me. Joey, I love you, bro. You're so funny. I love your sermons. I hate Kayla. We are not friends. And you should go to North Point. Okay, like there's... <laughs> if you tell me you love me but you hate my wife, I just, I don't, I don't think we can be friends. And likewise, for you to say that you love Jesus but do not love his bride is an inconceivable reality. Be careful how you talk about her. Can you remember how big the church is when you talk about her? Like when you say, the church hurt me. The church hurt me. Oh, what, what did the believers in Africa do to you? What did those people who are gathering in Ethiopia do to you? Tell me what the church in Moldova did to you. Oh, oh the church just has it all wrong. Oh, Tell me about what the believers in Seoul, Korea, who wake up at 4 a.m. to pray from 4 to 7 a.m. before they go to church, the, the largest church in the world that has literally hundreds of thousands of people who gather daily to worship. Like, what do they have wrong? Oh, the church is dying. Oh, the underground church in China that is grown by millions of people in a, a year, they're, they're dying. Be careful how you talk about Jesus' bride. Realize she's way bigger than maybe you've conceived. You know, I think it's really important for us to understand the value of the church and the value of something is determined by what you're willing to pay for it. According to Acts chapter 20, Jesus was willing to pay for the church with his blood. Pay careful attention. This is like writing to somebody like me. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. So I've got to watch my life and I've got to watch your life in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. Jesus said, this thing is so worth it. It is so valuable that I will not pay for it with corruptible things like silver or gold. I will not buy it as one buys a slave, but I will pay for it with my blood, my precious, holy, innocent, transcendent, canceling sin, eradicating death, defeating hell and the devil, blood. My blood that speaks a better word than all the words before. I will pay for the church with my blood. Do you know how valuable the church of Jesus really is? One thing that I want for you leaving here tonight, seeing the church as, that you've probably never thought about the church before as, is the dream in God's heart. The dream in God's heart. Like what have you dreamed about the most? Is it getting married? Having a kid? Starting a business? Like what have you dreamed about most? What? But what do you think about most? What have you been hoping for the longest? What is the one thing that you would do to show everyone who you really are? According to Ephesians, God's answer to all of those questions is the church. It's the dream in his heart. Let me show you. Ephesians chapter three, verse eight. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan. Look at the language here. Really hone in on the language here. What is the plan? Of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, 
God's got this mystery, this secret plan, and he created all things. He created everything. Everything was created so that his plan, his secret plan, his hidden mystery through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So come with me on this. If you could imagine right now that up in heaven, God the Father is getting all of heaven around. Just come on, everybody gather around. All the angels gather around. Hey, do you want to know how smart I am? You want to see how strong I am, how infinitely wise I am? You want to see the totality of my character? You want to see how brilliant I am? You want to see me really flex? You want to know exactly who I am? Gather together, all, all of heaven, all of the angelic celestial beings. Come on, come on, come on, Michael. Come on, Gabriel. He gets the demons together too. So come on, Nick Saban. All right, like gather. Gather around all of them, all of the celestial beings. They gather together. And he goes, you want to see the fullness of who I am? Ta-da! The church. Broken, sinful, fractured, half-hearted, inconsistent humanity. Rebels who have sinned against me and run away from me. Watch what I'm going to do when I pour out my blood. Watch who I'm going to turn these ordinary, average, everyday people into this ragtag group of fishermen. When I put my spirit within them, they're going to turn the world upside down. And they're going to stumble and they're going to fall. But I'm going to pour out my grace over and over and over again. And I'm going to take these finite, limited people and I'm going to do something in them and through them. I'm going to weave together this tapestry. These people who would never come together without my grace. People from all walks of life. CEOs and garbage men men and women, slave and free, rich and poor, woven together in this family and the way that they live and serve one another, the way that they love each other, the lives that they live together, the way that they respond to my spirit and live into my gospel is going to saturate throughout the whole world. This little wild claim that I am the Christ, the son of the living God is going to cause this movement to explode everywhere. It's going to touch everything. It's going to turn the world upside down. And the world is going to know about the greatness of who I am through the church. Do you know that God risks his heavenly reputation on you and me? He stakes the way that all of the universe sees him on the church. I wrote up this little write-up on the church because I know that the church has black eyes and mishaps, mishandlings, but... The church of Jesus has done more good for the world than education, democracy, technology, hospitals, orphanages, and every other nonprofit combined. We hear about all of the bad, the scandals. We never hear about the good. The church of Jesus is where believers show what we are and we learn what we are and we become what we are and we praise God for what we are. We are God's people, Christ's body, the spirit's temple, the shepherd's flock, the vine's branch. We are the kingdom citizens, the demonstration of God's wisdom and grace. It's the place that humanity comes to hear that they're more than just bodies of flesh that are to be used. They have minds and hearts and souls, dignity, worth, and value. They were made for more than the horizons of this world. The church is where people witness love in action, grace overflowing, truth that sets them free in a forever family. The church lives in the beautiful margins of the messy places of life at weddings of newlyweds and at funerals for 12-year-olds, at hospital beds for cancer patients and baby showers for single moms. We fight addiction with the message of freedom. We move towards pain, battle injustice, walk with the poor, seek to end suicide and continue Jesus' revolution. Love is the church's language. Faith is the church's intellect. Generosity is the church's gauge and service is the church's privilege. The church is Jesus, blood bought, precious bride, loved and holy, set apart and chosen, eternal, inevitable, and unstoppable. The church is the hope of the world. So what must we do with this thing called church? We must multiply. Over the next 10 years, we see Elevate City growing into a movement of 10 campuses and church plants that are Jesus-centered, discipleship-driven, transformation-focused houses of worship. I don't know about you, but I believe that the world needs more churches like ours. So we want to multiply what has happened here. 
If you didn't know, we are a part of a multi-campus movement. We've got another campus that was started 23 years ago in Milton, Georgia. And in 2020, in the midst of a pandemic, we launched Elevate City Church, believing that there's a generation in a city full of people who needed a church like this. And I'm just firmly convinced that there are so many other cities and so many other places and so many other people who need churches like ours. The Western church is in crisis. The Western church is in crisis. Over the next 30 years, all of the statistics and data tell us that in order to keep up with the trends of population and the amount of old churches that are dying and closing their doors, the amount of churches that will need to be started is 215,000 churches over the next 30 years. If we want to reach people who are not yet reached, then we need to plant an additional 60,000 churches. So over the next 30 years, that's 275,000 churches. Now, I don't know what you do for your day job, but I want for you to imagine somebody telling you that over the next 30 years, you needed to do something 275,000 times that has cost you everything. And that's the weight that I feel for the sake of our generation. And I wanna invite you tonight into feeling that weight too that it is not Joey who needs to multiply the church, it is us, we must multiply the church. And I just wanna tell you right now as your pastor that someday we're gonna launch other locations and you need to go. You need to be a part of the team, you need to help launch it, you need to give to it, you need to serve on it. Some of you, you're gonna be on the staff team to be a part of it someday, I believe it, and you need to go. Some of you are going to, when we launch these other campuses, you're gonna to need to sell houses and quit jobs and think about your life differently so that we can go into communities that there aren't churches yet like ours and see an outpost of the kingdom established in that zip code, amen? And I want for you to start praying about it. I want for you to start thinking about it because I firmly believe that the greatness of a church is not determined by their seating capacity, but by their sending capacity by our ability not to just attract large crowds, but to multiply disciple makers to the ends of the earth. And so it means that we're coming. We're coming to cities like Canton and Forsyth and downtown Atlanta. Someday I believe that, that we're coming to multiply what Jesus has built right here. You know, the Western church is in such crisis. Schisms on the left and the right, cultural division of politics, the sexual revolution in our generation, the epidemic of deconstruction, the model of church just kind of falling apart at the seams has caused the church to be in a state of crisis. And many believe that in the future, the church will have to compromise its values or close its doors. Well, all of the data says that nothing is further from the truth. Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, which is the most probably robust um, book that uh, charts the story of how Christianity grew to what it is today, charts how Christianity grew and predicts how Christianity will continue to grow. And he says that history has a tendency of repeating itself. And so these are the churches that have lived and thrived in the past. And it seems as if these are the churches that will live and thrive in the future. And the two kinds of churches that will live and thrive in the future are number one, multi-ethnic Pentecostal churches, which I wish we were, but we ain't, okay? And the second kind of church that will thrive and multiply and live in the future are orthodox, conservative theological churches that are driven by discipleship. Churches with a high view of the Bible and churches that passionately make disciples. Other churches will die. Contrary to popular belief, in the future, the churches that play games with human sexuality, the churches that empty the Bible of its authority, who refuse to talk about things like sin and hell and judgment, those churches will die. Do you know how I know? Because when you become just like the world, you have nothing to offer the world. And the, the world at large is not looking for an echo, they're looking for an alternative, for people to light the way in the midst of the chaos. And so the, the church of the future, the world of the future desperately needs churches like ours. Can I just tell you just personally why I think that cities around us, the world at large needs churches like ours? Because First Timothy says that the church is a buttress and a pillar of the truth. And the world at large needs churches that will hold up the Bible and say, we are people of a book, amen? 
and that our understanding of God is not primarily shaped by experience, tradition, popular opinion, culture, or what we're comfortable with. Our understanding of God is shaped by the word of God. This is our first source, our final authority, the greatest love story ever written, and the best part of it all yeah, the world needs churches like that. The world needs churches that don't take the great commission as the great suggestion, that aren't just concerned with attracting a crowd or putting on a show, but really forging disciples. I just want for you to know, if you haven't been through Equip, you need to get through Equip. It's special. It'll change your life. And Equip X this coming in January, it's going to change like your generation, your families, your, your cat's life, okay? It's changing everybody's life. And the world of the future, the cities. In Atlanta, they need churches that take discipleship, spiritual formation really, really seriously and really recapture the Great Commission. The world, they need spirit-filled churches. Churches that know that when people show up, they're not just looking for information about God, but an encounter with the living God. Who aren't just like, all right, cool, let's give people a 60-minute drive-through experience of church and go on with your day. But who say, no, 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 when we show up, we show up to commune with a God who is alive. We open our hands and we say, have your way with us. People are looking for that for the supernatural, for the unexplainable, for the spirit of the living God. They're looking for a place that's real, that's authentic, that will say the hard things and the difficult things, that will not just talk about things that nobody cares about or nobody's talking about, but that will talk about what everyone's talking about. I don't know if you remember, we did a series called What Everyone's Talking About. So the world needs churches like that. And I could go on and on. I could tell you, man, I've, I've worked at mega churches and churches with multiple campuses. I've had opportunities to go to real mega churches and stand on real big stages. But I stayed here because I believe in what Jesus is building. I believe in how healthy this staff culture is, what it does for pastors and their families to raise families here and have kids here and have healthy marriages here. Like the way that it raises up young leaders, the way that it keeps the main thing, the main thing, the, the way that there's no like weird, I'm not saying no, there's very little weird church politics. Like everybody's like, oh man, you know how it is to work at a church. You must get all of these weird emails and hurtful emails. Not, not really. Like I really don't. Like this place is just so different. So unique. Oh man, you must know how hard it is to raise money. Not, not really. Like I'm leading a pretty young church who just wildly, stupidly, sacrificially generous. Literally some of the times I'm like, how are you guys paying your bills? <laughs> like I have concern for some of y'all's generosity. Yeah, which praise God for that. We'll see if you're cheering. I'm talking about money next week, so bring a friend, okay? <laughs> And I just, man, I, I, I love this place. Guys, I, I love you. I love what Jesus is building here. And like, we really haven't seen nothing yet. I, I, I really believe it. Like someday there will not be a building that can contain what Jesus is building because it's gonna be multiplied all over the place. The world needs churches like ours. God has gifted you. Like you are the hungry generation. Scriptures say that God's eyes look to and fro for somebody whose heart is blameless before him and who really seeks his face. And I just want to believe that God's eyes are going to stop on Elevate City Church. And he's going to see a group of people who say, I'm so enamored by the fact that God would spill his blood for me that I want to give everything for him. So every one of you need to see yourself as a goer. Every one of you need to see yourself as a multiplier. The first step is getting more engaged if you haven't gone through base camp, go through stinking base camp. And then go through equip and get in a group and start to volunteer because you need to learn this stuff. Like even if we had enough volunteers, you need to know what those volunteers know so that when we send you or them out, somebody can backfill what they're doing here. Like get engaged, this stuff matters. We've got like a master plan to take over the world and we need you to get engaged with it. <laughs> See yourself as a goer. Open your hands and say, God, just... Have your way with me. You know, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. And there is a broken generation who is sitting at the table of culture and they're eating crumbs. And they're heartbroken, they're depressed, they're so confused. They're looking to sex and money and just anything, just wild things. Like they're inventing ways of doing evil now because they're so broken on the inside. All the while we know the hope of the world. And what needs to happen today is we need to have this gratitude in our heart for the church and our minds need to expand for what this thing called the church actually is. And our hearts need to break for the people who aren't a part of it so that we will determine to give our lives to multiply it. Hey, how do you think that the gates of hell think about the church? 
Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What's he talking about there? Is it the demonic? Is it Satan, the enemy himself? Perhaps, I think some of that's there. However, all throughout the pages of scripture, the gates of hell or the gates of Sheol, the gates of Hades, more precisely talk about death. What Jesus is saying is, death can't stop my church. Just really good news for people like you and me who are told to use our lives to build a brand, build a family and build a business and build a name for ourselves and build a bank account, but who realize that at the end of 80 years, we try to pass it on to our kids, but most of the time we don't. And it dies and all that we lived for is forgotten a generation later. Hey, I wanna give you something tonight that will be here long after you're gone that death can't take from you, cancer can't steal from you, a car accident can't rob from you. When you breathe your last breath, it's gonna keep on going. It's the church. See, everything tries to stop it. Everything tries to stand against it. Rome, the empire that it was in all of its power, with all of its authority, it tried to burn the church, imprison the church, cut the church in two, feed the church to lions, only to find out it couldn't stop the church. All throughout history, people thought that the book was going to close on the story of the church to only find out that when you cut us down, we grow back stronger. We multiply and we come back. The blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church. Nietzsche said that God is dead. And I want for you to know Nietzsche is dead and God is alive. And the church continues to thrive. And one day every other institution will fail and the church of Jesus will march on. The only question tonight is whether or not you and I will love it, be a part of it. Give your life to this one precious cause of building Jesus' church.